Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for being with us throughout this day. And as we begin this presentation, which looks at current events, we ask that you would guide our hearts and minds. We are not speaking here about people. We're speaking here about a system, a system that has been in place for hundreds of years. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I still remember just before this event happened, I was living on the island of Cyprus with my family. We had gone to church on a particular Sabbath. In fact, it was our first Sabbath at this church, the only church on the island of Cyprus, the only Seventh-day Adventist church there. Cyprus at that time was the headquarters of the Middle East Union of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I remember the first Sabbath that we were at the church there, the new church that we were going to be attending, another person came at the same time. He had driven two hours across the island to be at church that day, and it was the first time he had ever set foot in a Seventh-day Adventist church. His name was Joe. Joe had been raised in Ireland as an Irish Catholic. Joe was retired with his wife on the island of Cyprus, and Joe had been attending faithfully the Catholic Church with his wife every Sunday. But in retirement, realizing that there was a lot of time in retirement and not really being interested in just spending all that time at the beach, Joe began to watch a lot of television. And somehow, as he scanned the channels, he came across 3ABN and the Hope Channel. And he began to watch, captivated by the things that he was hearing for the first time in his life. He listened to the Hope Channel and 3ABN for over a year, wondering who this group was. When he went back to visit his daughter in England, he tried to look up a Seventh-day Adventist church, and not being very well acquainted with the internet, he decided that he would, well, get some help from his younger daughter. And he found that there was a church on the island of Cyprus. By that time, he had already been convinced that the Seventh-day Sabbath was the Sabbath of the Bible. He had been convinced that there was a sanctuary in heaven and that Jesus was serving as high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. And for Joe, that was not simply a matter of geography for him. For Joe, this was a revelation into a completely different system than he had been raised in. Joe came to church that Sabbath. A few weeks later, as Pope John Paul II was ailing in health, one of the pastors of that church said, we need to pray for the Pope and for the people. And I'll never forget Joe's reaction. Joe was incensed. He said, I will never pray for the Pope. Because he says, you don't understand what it feels like to be deceived for 66 years. He knows what he's doing. We need to pray for everyone, he said, but somehow I just can't come to pray.
few days later, all over the screens, in Cyprus, on all three channels, live, was the funeral of Pope John Paul II. Two billion people watched worldwide. Never had so many leaders in history come together for the funeral of a religious leader. According to USA Today, never had such a funeral drawn the interest of so many. Here is a map of the world representing the prime ministers and presidents of countries that were present at the papal funeral. The entire world came together. Those that were not there were watching on television like myself. Uh, an amazing choreographed media production, a masterpiece of public relations. As the simple casket was surrounded by the cardinals and the heads of state and other dignitaries. The ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew I of Constantinople or Istanbul was the honorary, was in the honorary first seat in the sector reserved for delegates from churches not in full communion with the Holy See. This was the first time in history that an ecumenical patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church attended a papal funeral since the Great Schism in 1054, almost a thousand years earlier. The Archbishop of Canterbury, then Rowan Williams, was also present at the papal funeral, the first time since the Church of England broke with the Catholic Church in the 16th century. And of course, we are all familiar with this picture, which was broadcast around the world, three former presidents kneeling before the casket. In Revelation 13, Protestant reformers had read this for centuries and concluded that what was being spoken of by this beast coming out of the sea, let's read it, then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Protestants had identified that sea beast power with none other than the papacy, and we'll continue to move through this passage a little bit later on. Based on the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 and the prophecies of Daniel 7 and 8, this power that first is described as a legs of iron that continue down into the feet of iron mixed with clay, Daniel 2, verse 41 through 42. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, so the kingdoms shall be partly strong and partly fragile. Many had interpreted this iron, these iron legs to be Rome, and had interpreted the spread of the various European powers in the toes and the feet. Paralleled with Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Revelation 17 and 13, we see 
these ten kingdoms being referred to again and again. Linking the apocalyptic prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, as had been unlocked by reformers and Reformation thinkers for centuries. Identifying the one power from which they believed uh, they needed to separate themselves from. Martin Luther writes, the two beasts, the papal empire and the imperial papacy, he declared, brings the secular sword under its control. State power mingled with religious power. And Zwingli and Melanchthon and Calvin and others all were unanimous in identifying this little horn power with the papal power. Several of these reformers gave up their lives, and I'm going over a little bit of what we had talked about earlier this morning. Both John Knox and Thomas Cranmer and many hundreds, thousands of others died at the edge of the sword, died in the flames because of their belief in sola scriptura and the upholding of the Bible and the Bible only as their creed. They would not be guided by a magisterium. They would not be guided by tradition. They would be guided by the Holy Word of God. Ellen White writes in The Great Controversy, page 439, speaking of Revelation chapter 13, she describes, she says, in chapter 13 is described another beast like unto a leopard to which the dragon gave his power and his seat and great authority. This symbol, as most Protestants have believed, represents the papacy which succeeded to the power and seat and authority once held by the ancient Roman Empire. The ancient Roman Empire, we see this twofold aspect that she speaks about in Daniel 8, chapter 9 through 11. I mean, verses 9 through 11. Speaking of the little horn, and out of one of them one of the four winds, came forth a little horn, which waxed exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. That meant it was coming, by the way, from the west. And it waxed great even to the host of the heaven. And it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped on them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. So first we have this horizontal movement as he's moving through, and then suddenly we have this vertical movement. He magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. Now, we've gone through a number of lectures today, both in art and also in, in history, and we've looked at how this... Uh, papal power was connected, how the reformers connected this papal power, but we've also looked at some of the Catholic artillery that went back towards the reformers, but it's also very interesting to see how the Catholics themselves view their connection with ancient Rome. It's very clear in their artwork, it's very clear in their architecture, it's very clear in their writings. And I know my wife did not give me permission today to do this, but I'm going to steal a little of her thunder. She wrote um, a very 
nice paper on this when she was a student at Emory University. And uh, I want to look at one of these scenes. She talked earlier about the power of the Baroque period as a triumphal movement initiated by Catholicism to show its triumph over Protestantism. And that the flowery Baroque style uh, made its way into churches all across the world, not only in the old world, but also in the new world. What the popes also did was that they, and this was commissioned by uh, Benedict, I believe, the 14th, they wanted to use the latest in cartography and science to map Rome and to map the world. In fact, when you visit the Vatican today, you will go through halls covered with maps. Why? Because world domination has always been the goal of the Catholic Church. And the map that they wanted to create of Rome, the eternal city, was commissioned by the Pope and was to, put in, was to be put in place by an artist and geographer by the name of uh, Jean-Baptiste Noli. Now, what's interesting about the map is that it's the first truly accurate map of Rome, even though it was done in the 18th century. If you put a Google Earth image over the top of this, it will be right on using not such sophisticated technology, it took Noli years to map out every building, every street. He would go inside of churches and take internal measurements to make sure he got everything right. But what is interesting is not the map. We're not going to focus on the map of Rome today. What we're going to focus on is the frame below on which this map, which, which frames the map above. In the center, you see a plaque with Benedict, I think it says Benedict, my, uh, the 14th. And on one side, on the right-hand side, you see the visages or the vestiges of ancient Rome. And on the other side, you see the glory of the Roman church. We're going to look at these a little bit more closely. And I don't know why it's a little bit, ah, this is a lot clearer. So here we have the vestiges of Rome. Maybe I should have Giselle come up and do this for us because she knows more about it than I do. That was a little impromptu. That's so I don't steal too much of her thunder, you see. It's not my thunder. It's right there in the art. I mean, that's the nice thing about art. It's like they tell you what they're thinking. So it's all there. So we don't have to say anything new that they haven't been saying about themselves already. So here you have the goddess Roma. Um, usually when the goddess Roma is sitting down, she's uh, celebrating a victory. Because when she's standing up, she, uh, Roma, the goddess Roma, was the, war, the goddess of war. Um, the, the, the Romans uh, had her depicted several times in their... Um, what is that called again? The armor breastplate or whatever. So here she's, she's, she's just won a victory. How much time do I have? Okay, I don't... <laughs> three minutes? Okay, okay. So um, in the bottom you have the she-wolf with Romus and Remulus, Rom, Romulus um, underneath, who is the beginning inception of the concept of the empire. 
And of course, they're dilapidated because guess what? It's old. It's, it's passe. But she is looking across to another woman on the other side who represents the ecclesia. And that is the woman representing the church. And there's a connection all through the entire thing. I mean, I can't even, I have only th three minutes is not enough. Um, right behind here is the, the dilapidated uh, palace or uh, temple of Castor and Pollux. And this is where they combined religion and state together under the Roman Empire. So on the other side, you have the Campidoglio. It's all echoing, echoing, old and new, old and new. And the symbolism is so rich. Um, behind here, you have the Arch of Constantine. Again, the first Christian emperor. So the Victory Arch of Constantine. Here you have a statue of the River Tiber. In the middle of Rome, you have the River Tiber going through. Um, he is also dilapidated um, because old Rome is uh, now looking at the new Rome on the other side. Um, the pope that died while this map was being made um, was actually buried on a sarcophagus just like that. So this referencing um, the pope and the old Rome, but he's, he's there. Are you going to show the other one? <laughs> okay, it's very pixeled. How do you, can you see her? She hears the ecclesia. The Rome, New Rome, Old Rome, New Rome. They're communicating it with each other. Behind her is the Church of St. Lateran, the very first church given to, by Constantine for the place of residence of the popes for centuries. This was more important, in a sense, for a while, before St. Peter's. This is where the popes lived. So here you have Saint, uh, the Lateran Church. You have the Ecclesia. She's beautiful and new and young. She's being crowned by the triple tiara. The crown um, is, oh, this is so pixeled. Um, beneath her, there's a key, the key of St. Peter. Above the world, they, they make no... No apologies in the artwork to what their intentions are. It's to rule the world. That's what they believe they're going to do. And then she has just taken, this little angel here has just taken the, the mitre crown, which is the spiritual crown, and a new angel, this is the Baroque, a new angel is giving her the triple tiara, which is the crown that they intended to rule the world with. Okay, um, and then here again, this is where it would all happen. If I'm not going to fall, um, this is here is the Campidoglio, the building I showed you earlier that Michelangelo went to redesign, where the popes wanted to rule the world from here, and they renovated it to do so during the Renaissance. So th this whole thing echoes. Did I forget anything? Oh. Um, <laughs> The, the, the flag of Constantine, okay, there's the chiro, um, you know, so the first flag of the Christians, the, the symbol which he won um, the empire from Maxentium's, that, Maxentium, that was the, the flag he used. I think I covered most of it. <laughs> Thank you. I knew she would do that much better than I could.
So what we have here again is the continuity between ancient pagan Rome, that's how we as a church have defined it and how the, how the uh, Protestants defined it as well, pagan Rome looking forward to papal Rome. And this is exactly how imperial Rome connecting with the church, this is exactly how we have prophecy uh, foretelling this in Daniel uh, 7 and Daniel 8 as well. Martin Luther, of course, as we have said earlier, and I'm not going to go into all of this detail. I want to move quickly because we have a question-answer period afterwards. Martin Luther identified, along with the other Protestants, that the Catholic Church was the Antichrist and that it was, in fact, the Pope was the Antichrist and, in fact, that this was uh, not to be according to the, uh, the Scriptures and according to what they had had done. Now, I went over these earlier today. I'll just go over them quickly. These are the reasons for his identification, some of the reasons. I gave a lot more reasons this morning, and I back that up not only from 500 years ago, but I back that up with recent documents in the last two or three years. So if you want to see that presentation, that was earlier today. He has deposed all of Scripture and set up his own laws. We're not only talking about the Sabbath, we're talking about actually changing the commandments and getting rid of the second commandment on images. The false church is always the persecutor of the true church, not only spiritually, but also physically by means of the sword and tyranny. They will kill those who cling to the word. The Pope has set up his own clergy, claiming that he was imprinting on their souls an indelible character, when in actuality he was imprinting them with the mark of the beast in Revelation. The papacy also negated Christ's sacrifice by proclaiming the mass to be a sacrifice for the living and the dead, obtaining forgiveness of sins. It is as though Christ had not done this very thing on the cross, as though his sacrifice had no validity and were of no value. God preserve us from having any other priest but Christ. The invocation of the saints is one of the abuses of the Antichrist, and we went even in more detail this morning. But an interesting thing has been happening in the last few years. It has taken hundreds of years, but it has taken place just as prophecy said it would, and that is the beauty of Scripture. Scripture is prophetic, and its prophecies will come to place, will come to pass. It says, and I saw one of his heads, we read the first part earlier, now we go to the next verse, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Isn't it interesting that in the last few years, we have seen this happening? We have now a beautiful, smiling pope, a pope that has won the hearts of the world, literally. There are people who could care less today about the Catholic Church, rock stars even, that have said, I, I don't, don't really care much about the church, but this pope, this pope is an amazing pope. He's going to change things. There are even uh, discussions this week, this past week, as a declaration was sent to the Vatican of concerned Catholics that the pope is moving to change too quickly what needs to be remaining as sound doctrine for the Catholic church. But is all of this really the case. Let's look. Here he is, the man of the year, or person of the year. We're now politically correct, so we say person of the year. Uh, Pope Francis, 
cover of Time magazine. Here he is on a special edition of Time, a pope for a new world. Just add one word to that, order, and you'll have kind of an Adventist uh, saying, won't you? Here's the cover of National Geographic where Pope Francis is staring into the place where the conclave met to make him pope. This is, of course, the Sistine Chapel with Michelangelo's beautiful painting and frescoes on the ceiling. And notice the subtitle, Pope Francis Remakes the Vatican. Is he remaking the Vatican? You needed to be here for my morning presentation because we said nothing has been remade. It remains the same. Another author has described it as the Francis miracle inside the transformation of the Pope and the church. Even Rolling Stone magazine has the Pope on its cover along with Sting and Paul Simon Pope Francis, the times they are a-changing. Well, what is changing is that the protest of the Protestants is not what it used to be. Here we have a final one. Welcome Pope Francis. Catch him in person. New York, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia. Pope Francis, the people's pope, the commemorative issue that was recently given. This is what Ellen White says in Great Controversy 571, and I want to reiterate this in light of the presentation this morning. It is not without reason that the claim has been put forth in Protestant countries that Catholicism differs less widely from Protestantism than in former times. There has been a change, but the change is not in the papacy. Catholicism indeed resembles much of the Protestantism that now exists because Protestantism has so greatly degenerated since the days of the Reformers. When Pope Francis came to America, we were all watching. Probably we were all watching because there was nothing else hardly to watch. Everybody covered the visit. It was a huge, huge media splash, and it was a major event. I got this off the Internet. Just some interesting tidbits. It was his first visit to the United States. Unlike his six predecessors, he did not come earlier to the States as a cardinal or as a bishop. It was the second country he visited after visiting Cuba. I think that probably was quite strategic. And uh, he visited some very strategic country, cities here as well. Washington, D.C., the capital, New York, the financial capital of the world, and Philadelphia, the certainly historic capital in terms of the Constitution and in terms of um, our history as a nation. It was the fourth pope in history to visit the United States. I don't know if you realize that. Let me just share with you an interesting fact. Since 1620, when the Puritans escaped religious persecution in the Old World, and arrived in America at Plymouth Rock. You remember your American history, right? There have been 34 popes. Only four have visited the United States. The first was not in 1965 until 1965. It took 345 years for a pope to visit the United States of America. 
And that visit in 1965 was for a single day. Pope John Paul II, of course, visited this country seven times and, of course, was hailed on the cover of Time magazine with Ronald Reagan as being credited with the fall of communism. President Barack Obama met the Pope with his wife Michelle and his daughters at Andrews Air Force Base. This was also not quite precedent setting because the last time Pope Benedict came to the United States during George Bush's administration, that was the first time ever that a visiting dignitary was met at Andrews Air Force Base. Prior to that time, no one ever was met by the President of the United States at Andrews Air Force Base. People were always met at the White House, indicating very clearly who was superior and who had the superpower position in the world. But this is the second time in history of a papal visit where the President went to Andrews Air Force Base itself. Very interesting. It was the first time a pope ever addressed the joint sessions of Congress. Now, it's very interesting. Um, we were not not gonna analyze today what the pope said. We, we heard, many of us, what he said, and it seemed fairly benign, talking about climate change, talking about family, talking about various issues that he felt were important. But it's interesting that standing behind the pope as he was speaking are two very key individuals. On the left-hand side is Joe Biden, the Vice President of the United States, a Catholic, and to the right is the Speaker of the House, also a Catholic, Rick Boehner. And that's interesting. Let's look at this a little bit more closely. In fact, this was one of the few pictures, well, no, Boehner looks like he's crying there as well. Um, he was crying intensively during this experience. It was a very emotional day. The, the media really captured this often. Um, here he is again as, he was, as the speech was being delivered at Congress. And when the Pope came out to speak and address the people on the mall in Washington, D.C., there were, there were uh, the Vice President and the House Speaker again. Boehner was in tears almost constantly. Very interesting what he said after this event took place. This was an interview on CBS Face the Nation Sunday. You can look it up. It's available on YouTube. To a kid who grew up as an altar boy, having the Pope here was a big deal, Boehner said. And he went on to describe in the interview how he had tried to get each of the three popes who served during his 20-plus years in Congress to address the lawmakers of Congress, but only succeeded this year. It is clear that the Catholic Church, through key lawmakers and government officials, have worked toward this goal for decades. How has this been successful? We shouldn't be ignorant of the fact that the climate has changed so drastically in this Protestant nation. This is not by chance. The softer stance on immigration has not only changed the political and social demographics of this country, it has changed the religious demographics. The postmodern notion of tolerance at all costs and the demise of truth has led us to ignore the true history of this persecuting power and a power that was most intolerant during hundreds of years of its existence. It's interesting that House Speaker John Boehner 
the day after the address at Congress announced his resignation as Speaker of the House in his retirement. Think about that for a moment. It's almost as if his goal had been reached. His lifelong goal had been reached and it was now time for him to retire. The Pope's visit to the United States was couched in beautiful language, language that the masses could really identify with. Love is our mission. The world meeting of the families in Philadelphia, let's lift up the family. Climate change and global alliance to save the planet. All very proper and good ideals that people of the world can unite under. But the question remains, what really is Roman Catholicism at its core? And I, again, ask you to look at my earlier presentation. Because we've seen there that really it has not changed. And the key fundamental teachings remain as they were here in 500 years ago during the Protestant Reformation. What about the executive? We've looked at uh, executive, uh, the executive branch now a little bit and the legislative branches. Uh, what, about, um, what about the third branch of the U.S. Gov government? What is that? The judicial branch, right? It's the most fascinating development, in my opinion, as we look at what has happened in the United States in the last uh, only few years. Fascinating. Here we have the members of uh, the judicial branch. And I have not updated this picture because you can see one of those members of the judicial branch, uh, Justice Scalia, is still sitting there in the front row. He died last year. There are nine seats on the Supreme Court. This body has been established, of course, to interpret and enforce the Constitution of the United States. Let's look at some facts. There are 212 justices, 13 now, with the new justice that was just appointed to replace Scalia. 213 justices in American history. In that time, 13 have been Catholic. 6% of all the justices on the Supreme Court. In 1994, the court had a Protestant majority. In fact, it wasn't until 1979 that a Catholic was appointed to the court. 1979. I was alive then. Many of you were too. That was the first time we had a Catholic justice. After that time, since 1979, there was a, a tradition that kind of was established that at least one justice on the Supreme Court should be Catholic. We'll see a graph here in a moment. But in 1994, the court had a Protestant majority. By 2005, 11 years later, a second Catholic was appointed. Now, that's only 12 years ago, isn't that right? 12 years ago. It's very interesting that by 2009, four years later, the entire court had shifted to a two-thirds majority Catholic. Six Catholics on the court and three others. Only one of those three was Protestant. The other two are Jewish. When the Protestant Justice Sessions retired, 
It was going to be very interesting what would happen. And when Justice Scalia, who was a Catholic, died last year, it was also a very interesting time to see what would happen. It's very interesting that in 2010, uh, John Paul Stevens, uh, when he retired, was uh, replaced again with another Catholic, with, I'm sorry, with a Jewish individual. And now, for the first time in 2010, there, had not, there is not a single Protestant on the judicial branch of the U.S. government. It is all Catholic and three Jewish. Two-thirds majority Catholic. Now, I, don't, I didn't update this because this is a little impromptu today, but it's very interesting that the last Supreme Court justice that was just appointed and voted in under Donald Trump's administration, he can, uh, has the power to appoint, there was a huge write-up in CNN about questioning his religious affiliation because the current justice has uh, basically went to Catholic schools his whole life, was raised a Catholic, and only in recent years has been attending a evangelical non-denominational church in Boulder, Colorado. But as far as the records go, he has never changed his membership to that church. He's never been baptized in that church. And as people commenting on this on the CNN article have said, once a Catholic, always a Catholic, until you do something that changes that, which hasn't occurred. It's very interesting that the melding of evangelicalism and Catholicism is, is feeling its, its way uh, in the government circles as well, as far as this goes. I would submit that probably he is still Catholic, and we now still have a two-thirds majority as well, even though he's not quite maybe identified in the same way. But isn't that interesting? Law professor Jeffrey Rosen puts it this way. It's a fascinating truth that we've allowed religion to drop out of consideration on the Supreme Court. And right now, we have a Supreme Court that religiously, at least, by no means looks like America. He's writing this in 2007, 10 years ago, as he's looking at the Supreme Court. If we look at the statistics, we can see here um, the history of Protestantism just in the last, since 1979, when William, um, I can't read that from here, uh, Donovan, is it Don? No, Brunin. Brennan, sorry, William Brennan, when he was appointed as a Catholic in 1979, the first Catholic to serve, and then how that has changed up through 2009. Now, this is fascinating because as we look at, at this statement, it's interesting. He says that we have not allowed religion or we've allowed religion to drop out of consideration. But is that really true? Or have we simply shifted the religion to include Catholic and Jewish voices? It has been very much a consideration, I believe, what we have left out is Protestant religious affiliation. How odd in a nation that was founded by Protestants and who sought to establish a separation between church and state, a position which has never been accepted by Catholicism. I refer here to Pope Pius X and his statement in one of his uh, encyclicals. That the state must be separated from the church is a thesis absolutely false a most pernicious error. Hence, the Roman pontiffs have never ceased as circumstances required to refute and condemn the doctrine of the separation of church and state. Why? 
Well, because of the persecutions that took place in the past. Um, why do we have the separation of church and state? Because of the persecutions. Why do they not want the separation of church and state? So that they can have temporal as well as religious power. And it is very interesting that uh, in both of the, uh, both of the uh, works that were cited in the previous presentation, that they were arguing that maybe this wasn't such a, that maybe separation of church and state was, was not such a bad thing. After all, maybe it's, it's, uh, maybe it should have been, uh, maybe the Catholic position was correct after all. It's interesting how Protestantism has changed on this as well. We saw this earlier. This was the cover of Time magazine upon Pope Francis's visit to the United States in Europe. In the United States, this picture did not make the cover. Bernie Sanders did during the election. But it was inside uh, the Time magazine, the local one here. The new Roman Empire, the global reach of Pope Francis. So what would Luther say today? What do Protestants say today? And we have uh, looked at some of this, but I'm just going to go through this very quickly. As, as many of you know, in 1999, there was the famous joint declaration on the doctrine of justification. This was already mentioned by Dr. Pettibone in his presentation early this morning. In this joint declaration, we have this statement in the introduction. By appropriating insights of recent biblical studies and drawing on modern investigations of the history of theology and dogma. I want to stop there. Because when we look at modern biblical studies, that's code word for modern historical criticism. And the number one thing that has caused the demise of the Protestant voice today is the bankruptcy of the Bible due to the modern scientific worldview. If you no longer see God and in neo-orthodoxy and in the new Protestantism of today, you have this. If you no longer see God as directly inspiring the Word of God because He cannot interact in human history, due to philosophical naturalism and the cycle of cause and effect and the cycle of naturalism that sees only the world operating by its own laws and so forth. If you do not see a God intervening in history, working through history, and orchestrating things through history, if you don't see a God who is doing that, you remove the God who can even come into history as a baby born in Bethlehem and die on the cross of Calvary. He becomes simply a man. You remove the foundation for Scripture and all the prophecies that have pointed to it because prophetic interpretation, prophecy is not possible within that kind of mindset. And what has happened in Protestantism in the last 200 years is that much of the churches, including the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church, agree on how Scripture should be interpreted based on this a priori system of presuppositions that are placed on top of the Bible that come outside of the Bible itself, known as historical criticism. I don't have time to go into all of this today because uh, that's a whole discussion on hermeneutics, but it is extremely important. The secularization 
of this world is not because of Protestantism. It's because Protestantism has lost its focus on sola scriptura. It's because it has allowed other norms to be placed onto scripture that then has allowed them to reinterpret creation, reinterpret the fall, reinterpret Calvary itself. Boltman was very, very uh, involved in this, and he even uh, called his agenda to demythologize Scripture because now that Scripture had become mythology in the modern scientific sense of historical criticism, he said we must demythologize it to make it acceptable in the world that we live in today. So what did he do? He said heaven is simply a metaphor for good and hell is simply a metaphor for evil. For we can no longer speak about these realities of what is above and what is below in the scientific world that we live in. And this leading Lutheran theologian, along with many other Lutheran theologians, basically acknowledged and gave the Bible over to secular thinking that made it devoid of any divine inspiration. We need to recognize that this was something that didn't come from Protestantism, but that came from outside of Protestantism. Let's continue. Sorry, I got sidetracked there. The post-Vatican II ecumenical dialogue has led to a notable convergence concerning justification, with the result that this joint declaration is able to formulate a consensus on basic truths concerning the doctrine of justification. In light of this consensus, the corresponding doctrinal condemnations of the 16th century do not apply to today's partner. So there are monumental moves starting in 1999 and continuing to this day to try to bring these entities together. But the Catholic position on justification hasn't changed. No, it hasn't at all. And if you read through this document carefully, which we will not do today, we, we will, we will, you will see that. So for a period of 10 years now, this jubileum, as it's known in German, this uh, anniversary or this commemoration uh, has been planned. Every year focusing on a different aspect of the gift of the Reformation. And it is planned not only by Lutheran uh, theologians and the Lutheran Church in Germany, it is planned also by the Catholic Church together with them. This is very interesting. Why? Why is the Catholic Church celebrating Lutheranism? Why is the Pope today, not today, but, but uh, just in the last few months declared that he is going to, not he, but that the Catholic Church is going to have a stamp, a Vatican stamp, you know, they send mail from there too, a Vatican stamp with Luther on it. Why, has they, why have they changed their position on Galileo, who they condemned as a heretic many, many years ago, but now have, uh, have accepted him? What is the reason for all of this? Could there be a deeper reason than simply uh, changing their position? Let's look at this. This is, very, this is from the website that deals with this celebration that's taking place this next month, which starts, what, tomorrow? The Catholic Church, as Martin Luther knew it, did not display much tolerance. Wow, that's an understatement, isn't it? Well, let's, let's count how many people were burnt at the stake. Let's count the hundreds of thousands that died in the Thirty Years' War. Let, let's count what really happened here. 
didn't display much tolerance. However, Luther was convinced of God's mercy and wanted to reflect this conviction in his faith. The aspiration of the evangelical church today, that's the Lutheran church, is to achieve an ecumenical community with no national or confessional boundaries. Did you hear that? No national or confessional boundaries. Don't want boundaries anymore. This is a new age we live in. How tolerant evangelical faith really is, and to what extent the Reformation contributed to the freedom of religion and expression, was explored and debated in numerous events. Now, another thing that is happening simultaneously as this jubileum is planned for this next month and has been planned for the last 10 years. By the way, the one that's highlighted there, that started last year. That's when I gave this presentation first, 2016. Reformation and the one world. Okay? That says it all right there. That's the goal. One world, one faith. Let's not squabble anymore. Let's all come together. In 2017, there are a number of jubilees. It's like a jubilee within a jubilee within a jubilee, which makes it kind of a super year for Catholic doctrine. It is the 500-year jubilee for the Protestant Reformation. 500 years, that's 50 times what? 10. It is also the jubilee for the dialogue that began between Lutherans and Catholics in 1967. 50 years they've been dialoguing on this topic. It is also a jubilee in 2017 for the charismatic movement, which 50 years ago in 1967 broke out on the campus of Dubesnik University, a Catholic university, and continues to spread within the Catholic Church as well as in Protestantism and is seen as a uniting force of the Holy Spirit bringing these communities together. We should beware as Adventists. The charismatic movement is not a movement that is bringing us closer to the Bible. It is a movement that comes from someplace else. Pope Francis invited the crowd. This is, again, last year. It already happened, by the way. Pope Francis invited the crowd, which included charismatics from 55 countries, to come to St. Peter's Square for Pentecost in 2017 to celebrate this 50th anniversary of the movement. The Catholic charismatic movement, I just said that. This is what he says. I expect all of you, charismatics from around the world, to celebrate your great jubilee with the Pope at Pentecost in 2017 in St. Peter's Square. That already happened this year. And it is part of that. What are these jubilees all about? Jubilees are a time for reconciliation. A year of reconciliation between adversaries, of conversion and receiving the sacrament of reconciliation. And consequently of solidarity, hope, justice, and commitment to serve God with joy and in peace with our brothers and sisters. By the way, the Catholic Church does not depict itself as the brother. The Catholic Church depicts itself as the mother. And all the Protestant churches are the wayward siblings that need to come back. Okay? This is something. By the way, I'm taking this from websites that are quite official. This is from the Vatican itself. Not getting stuff from everywhere and anywhere. 
a service of reconciliation prompted and requested by Protestant and Catholic churches in Germany already took place in Hildesheim on March 11 of this year, the eve of the second Sunday in Lent, as the nucleus of a process of healing of memory. Regional Bishop Dr. Heinrich Bedford-Strom, Chairman of the EKD Council, and Reinhard Cardinal Marx, President of the German Bishops' Conference, will officiate over this worship service. It will combine elements of repentance and prayers for forgiveness with acts of reconciliation intended to bolster the future of ecumenism. All of this is happening, already has happened, in preparation for this coming month. We don't know what's going to happen this coming month, but we know the preparations that have taken place towards it. Last year, in August 10, 2016, this was put all over the news media as the Evangelical Lutheran Church signs a declaration on the way. The ELC, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, represents 3.7 million Lutherans in the United States. And uh, it's another group than the one that signed the declaration, um, the joint declaration in 1999. Nearly 500 years after Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door, the largest Lutheran denomination in the U.S. has approved a declaration recognizing there are no longer church-dividing issues on many points with the Roman Catholic Church. Notice, not every point. The declaration comes as the Lutheran and Catholic churches prepare to kick off a year of celebrations to mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It's interesting that an anniversary of protest becomes a mechanism for ecumenism. So what about the rest of Christianity and the rest of the world? What about the Eastern Christian churches? The Great Schism of 1054, which resulted in part because of the rejection of the Eastern churches who rejected recognizing the Bishop of Rome as the head of the entire Catholic Church. That was part of that dispute. There are others. Has also been making significant headway. In February 12, 2016, in, in Havana, Cuba, for the first time in 962 years, a Ru the Russian patriarch Kirill met to discuss the welfare of Christians in the Middle East and Asia with Pope Francis. A few months later, in April 16 of last year, Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew I, who is recognized as the first among equals, he is the first among the various patriarchs in the Eastern churches from Istanbul or Constantinople, came and met with the Pope. They issued a joint declaration. This is from Radio Vaticana, Radio Vatican, and this is the quote. For our part, in obedience to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, we affirm and wholeheartedly resolve to intensify our efforts to promote the full unity of all Christians. We affirm our conviction that reconciliation involves promoting social justice within and among all peoples, 
Together, we will do our part towards giving migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers a humane reception in Europe. By defending the fundamental human rights of refugees, asylum seekers, and migrants, and the many marginalized people in our societies, we aim to fulfill the church's mission of service in the world. While we were in Israel that year, last year, in 2016, in June, the long touted and anticipated meeting of various uh, heads of the various uh, Eastern churches met together on the island of Crete. Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew led prayers attended by the ten Orthodox church leaders who attended to mark the end of a week-long holy and great council. It was the first of its kind where all the, not all, but most of the Eastern Orthodox churches came together. It was the first of its kind in 1,200 years. And as you read the news media about this event, especially anticipating the event, it was the first step towards reconciliation with Rome. Are you with me? They had to come together first before they reconciled with Rome. But there was a problem. Despite decades of preparation, several Orthodox leaders failed ahead of the meeting to overcome differences on efforts to reconcile with the Vatican and some doctrinal issues, and four of the Orthodox communions were not present, including the largest, the Russian Orthodox Church, which includes 100 million members. What would Martin Luther say about all of these things? What should we say about all these things? The prophecy of Daniel 2 that describes a, a world that is divided, at least the European world that is divided, because as we read in Daniel chapter 2, as the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. In recent years, we've seen quite a bit of events, even to change the so-called European Union. Brexit made headlines all over, and it has been very interesting to listen to the news in the last months since that has happened the amount of negativity towards the Brexit decision. The news is full of negativity towards this. How dare they move away from the European Union? It's interesting. Do you know the history of the European Union and where the European Union first began to be formed? It was in Rome in 1957, exactly 50, I'm sorry, exactly 60 years ago, this year. It was there that leaders of the various countries of Europe came together and signed what is known as the Treaty of Rome. And that treaty, after World War II, led to a consolidation of power, economic resources, and other resources to form the European Union. It comes as no surprise that this year, in March of this year, 
to commemorate 60 years and to specifically address the crisis of Britain leaving the European Union that a new meeting took place in Rome. I don't know. Have you guys been watching the news? Here are the heads of the European Union countries. And what room are they meeting in? The Sistine Chapel, where the popes are made pope. Who is standing in their midst? The pope. And as they met there, and as they came together to sign a joint new declaration affirming the European Union and affirming a forging ahead, they were challenged by the Pope. You can read this online. You can read his message to the group. They were challenged by the Pope that the agenda that they had set to themselves 60 years ago must not be thwarted by current events. We need to unite together and move ahead and forge forward. Now, it's interesting that as the Pope entered the hall where he would address them, they all stood. And it's interesting that as he sat on his throne, they all sat below him. It is fascinating that the only Prime Minister of the European Union, former European Union, that was missing was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, of Great Britain. And this was a crisis. It is a crisis. It's an ongoing crisis. But could it be that it is a sign that Daniel 2 is actually not so far off after all? You see, friends, we have inherited a system of understanding prophecy which has united Protestantism for hundreds of years, and yet today Protestantism is falling apart because it no longer has that united interpretation of prophecy. What has undermined it? The scientific approach to Scripture that has robbed and bankrupted Scripture from its divine authority. What else has caused the demise of this? Well, we had this slide up earlier today. I want to put it up again. The historicist view that identified the Catholic Church as the Antichrist, the historicist view that identified God's movements in history through time, that particular ideal, that particular vision that gave impetus to the Protestant Reformation, one of two, sola scriptura and prophecy, those two elements has been completely reinterpreted with different ideas. Preterism melded itself more and more with historical criticism since the Enlightenment uh, experience and, 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 and experiment. Futurism, both of these systems, by the way, developed by Jesuit Catholics in Spain in the Counter-Reformation period in the 1600s, pushed everything forward into the future. One pushed everything back and said everything was, well, there was no real predictive prophecy. Everything was already done in the past. The other pushed everything way off in the forward. And idealism, which is very popular today, even within our church, says that there is no historical fulfillment anymore. 
These are simply symbols. They're simply too difficult to understand. Let's not be so dogmatic about these things. We're finding scholars, even within our church, who are saying, historicism, yes, we're historicists, but let's, let's apply a little preterism here and a little futurism here and idealism here. We need to fit in with the new zeitgeist of this time. Historicism is out of fashion in scholarship today. It's dangerous, folks, because if we lose that defining point of our understanding of biblical prophecy, we will lose what every other single Protestant church has lost as well, and that is its identity and its reason and its mission and its message. You see, because in all of these three systems besides historicism, where is papal Rome? It vanishes, it's not addressed, it's not part of the picture whatsoever. Isn't that convenient for the Catholic Church? I read this earlier, I'll read it again. I'm coming to the end. If a man consider the origin, Thomas Hobbes, English philosopher, of this great ecclesiastical dominion, he will easily perceive that the papacy is no other than the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire, sitting crowned on the grace thereof. Today, we are seeing a new Roman Empire emerging. It's not new, it's old. It's as old as the Protestant reformers. It's even older. It goes all the way back to the time of Constantine. It is a system that has replaced biblical theology. It has replaced God's sending of his son as the sacrificial high priest that we can go and, and approach the throne of God uh, uh, specifically and thoroughly through Jesus. If Hobbes and the reformers were alive today, they would be amazed to see the ghost of the Roman Empire reestablishing itself again in leaping strides. Do we care as much as the reformers did? What caused this German monk to have the audacity to do what he did? Could it be that truth with a capital T, as found in Scripture, compelled him? even moved him so forcefully to expose the errors of a system that had wholly and completely replaced the good news of the gospel, plunging the world into darkness for so many centuries. That is why the reformers chose to translate the Bible so that every common person could understand it. That is why they pointed believers ever back to the living Word of God. If Luther was moved by the plight of his people then, shouldn't we today be moved by the plight of billions of people around the world who, as my friend Joe would say, have been deceived? I remember the last words Joe spoke to me after living almost a year in Cyprus during my Fulbright time there, we were sitting around the table on a Sabbath afternoon for lunch. I think Giselle made haystacks that day, so Joe experienced a bit of cultural Adventism that day. But as we were eating together with our Irish friend, 
we were talking about baptism together. And Joe said, I've been baptized as an infant. Why do I need to be baptized again? And it simply came out of my mouth innocently. I said, well, as Protestant Christians, we believe in baptism by immersion. And Joe nearly jumped out of his chair. He said, Protestant? Did you just say Protestant? You mean you're a Protestant? What are you talking about? I said, well, yes, the Seventh-day Adventist Church came out of the Protestant movement. <sighs> okay. He dropped his fork, and he just sat there for a few seconds. He says, I have to digest this now. You see, for the whole year that he was watching the Hope Channel in 3ABN, he never made the connection. Maybe God protected him from that. I don't know. And then he said this. He said, Michael... He says, you have to understand that this is a very difficult thing for me to swallow. I'm an Irish Catholic, and this is just who I am. Joe said later that day, if you ever go back to America, tell the people there about me. And he says, tell them how it feels to be deceived for 66 years. Is it just a misunderstanding? Or has the Seventh-day Adventist Church been called for such a time as this? The authority of the Bible, sola scriptura, even though it has been given up by most mainstream Protestant organizations today, and by the way, that was the topic of Gerard Domstieg's presentation that he was not able to give, the darkness of Protestantism after 1844. The authority of the Bible, sola scriptura, it has been replaced in Protestantism with all kinds of other things. But today, as Seventh-day Adventists, do we still believe in the authority of the Bible? Do we believe that the Bible is authoritative in every aspect of life, not just where it's convenient for us? Do we believe in the authority of the Bible when we speak about creation? Creation in six literal days. Not a very convenient view, not a politically correct one in the world that we live in today, but it is a biblical view, and it is the one that the Reformers stood by as well. Luther wrote copiously, not only about prophecy, but about history. The state of the dead, do we believe in that today? Oh, before I leave creation, maybe I should mention one thing. It's very interesting that the first angel's message, right? We read it earlier today. The first angel's message begins with the reference to creation. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. A direct quote, by the way, out of the fourth commandment. Is it coincidence that we have been called to give the three angels' messages today? and that we are almost the only church in existence today that still affirms a literal six-day creation and has just revoted that in our recent fundamental beliefs, tightening the language even further. The state of the dead, which protects us from all kinds of things, the prophetic movement that we have been called 
and that we have been even given a prophet to help us navigate the dangers of the times in which we live. What a blessing those little red books are. They are not only a homiletical blessing to help us with our, with our devotional life, but they are an authoritative blessing because she is the prophet of God, prophetess of God. The historicist interpretation of prophecy that I just mentioned that pointed us for the first time to believe in a sanctuary where Jesus is serving as our, as our high priest. What a complete antithesis to the system on this earth where thousands of priests offer transubstantiated communion or the Mass every single day. Righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith. By faith alone. We are not going to heaven because of our works. We're going because of the faith that we have in Jesus and the merit of His blood alone. This is not what is taught today and the Sabbath. Sometimes I think that we as a Seventh-day Adventist church, and I say this cautiously, but sometimes I wonder that we as a Seventh-day Adventist church haven't just simply boiled down everything to just the Sabbath. Do we understand the full picture? This is not the full picture. This is a few of our distinctives. But do we understand the full picture of who we are and what we've been called to do at this time? Can you give a Bible study on 1844 to your neighbor? Do you understand what that means? Have you studied it carefully? I've challenged myself with that too in the past. By the way, Cliff Goldstein has a wonderful little website, 1844 Made Simple. He's got the PowerPoint all there, and you can work through that material. He's got tons of resources there as well if you want to re-engage in our prophetic heritage. The Sabbath. You see, the choice is, our, is ours still today if we're going to stand for the truths that this church has been called up for. The seventh-day Sabbath, the sign of what it will be when Jesus comes again. I don't know about you, but I have a strong feeling. It's not a feeling. It's based on reason. It's based on the scriptures, the prophetic word. We are going to be facing some big issues in the future. This is just the background stuff that we've barely been hearing about. But it's going to become more intense. And we will be tested for our faith. We're being tested for our faith right now every single day. We're being tested in little ways. You know, do I buy and sell on the Sabbath? Is it not a big deal? I mean, after all, you know, Jesus will understand. Well, it's not, not a big deal. Well, do we make other people pay for us or, or buy things? You know, do we, do we make other people work for us on the Sabbath? It's not such a big deal. I mean, I'm resting. Mm, have you read the fourth commandment? Neither your manservant nor your maidservant, nor the stranger that is in your house. Wow. How far we have come sometimes, I think. It is my prayer that we will go back to the word of God 
and that we will refortify ourselves with the Word of God. That is the only thing. Ellen White says that at the end of time, Scripture will be our only safeguard. May we rest on Scripture and await His soon coming. Let's bow our heads for prayer as we close. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your goodness. You've given us your Word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May we not be enshrouded in darkness. May the word illuminate our way forward through these troubling times. May we be reflectors of the light of Jesus Christ who came into this world, who died on the cross of Calvary so that we can have direct access to your throne through his ministry in our behalf right now, this very moment. His prayers are mingled with our prayers. Oh, Lord God, take us away from ourselves and may we focus on Jesus, the Word made flesh. There is time for us to repent and reform today as well. The Reformation is never over. We are part of it today. And as we are here silently praying to you, I just want to ask today, this afternoon, that if there are those here today, as we are here with our eyes closed, if there are those here today who want to stand up in loving ways and yet in uncompromising ways to stand for truth. I ask that we would raise our right hands for that today. Lord God, you see these hands before us. We are few. The powers of this earth are great, but we serve Jesus Christ who says, I have overcome the world. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Take us home where we will not have to face these trials and tribulations. I pray for our friend, Dr. Domstigd. Be close to him right now. Do not let the devil get his way. Protect him, your servant. Guide him. We thank you for this afternoon. We thank you for yesterday. And we praise you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.